All right, guys, Acts chapter 2. Um, we covered a lot last week, right? We covered a lot of things. Uh, that was a little deeper message, I guess, by the end anyway. Um, took us some places that we're not always comfortable, but we want to go where the text always takes us. Uh, but we only covered two verses. Lord willing, we want to add the next 13 verses to that um, this morning. So here's the scene as we just briefly, I think most of you have been here with us. So here's the scene. Uh, it was the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit had come upon 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem, and that's a feast, the Feast of Pentecost, but this was the actual day on the Sunday that started the feast. And because of the Holy Spirit's presence in them, they end up speaking in languages, known human languages they had never studied before, and end up spilling out of the house. And Jerusalem is flooded during these uh, annual feasts. There's three of them a year, and this one's called Pentecost in the month of June. It's flooded with hundreds of thousands of Jews that are there, either living there or visiting from outside for the feast. And as they come out, they're speaking in these languages, and those who are from other countries recognize their language is being spoken by someone within the 120, and a crowd just starts gathering. So if you've been with us, something I tried to do this past week uh, that I pictured to help me is I want you to just, in, just pretend for a moment that we're in our back parking lot and Peter is backed up by the 11 and he's over on the other side and the parking lot is just filled with people. They don't have amplification like this. And so he's having to speak very loud at the top of his lungs, no doubt, trying to get some points across. And he has a message to preach. He began by saying that this outpouring of the Spirit was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament, chapter 2. And he was saying this was one of those fulfillments. And then he quoted that to them, telling these Jews that the prophet Joel's prophecy has come to pass this day. There's more to come later, but it has happened in this day. And he finishes the quote from Joel with a very powerful verse that appears many times throughout the Bible, multiple times even in the New Testament. And it's verse 21. So here's kind of going back just a couple of weeks. He finishes Joel's quote by saying that it would come to pass. And then it had happened. This is 2,000 years ago. Peter is saying it has come to pass. The prophecy was it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because that, listen, that's a powerful promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, very, that's an awesome promise promise from the Word of God, but it is a frightening promise because only those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, you, to this moment, have never called upon the name of the Lord. You don't remember a time in your life. You are not saved. It is only those who call in the name of the Lord. So Peter, again, picture he's out in our back parking lot and it's just full of people. He knows this truth, but he also knows they cannot, they have not called on the name of the Lord because they don't know who the Lord is. And so he spends this message trying to show them that the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. And he's going to say that Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, has been attested to them, has been confirmed. I'm using the word validated in my messages. Jesus has been validated, confirmed, proven to you. He's been attested to you by God. How? By his miracles. That was the first point last week, verse 22. And then secondly, by his death. So now we're still reviewing where the Jews may have thought, yeah, we did think he was the Messiah until he died on a cross. Obviously, he's not the Messiah. Peter is going to show them, no, you've got to change your thinking. 
Him dying on a cross did not disqualify him from being the Christ, the Messiah. It actually identifies him clearly as the Messiah Christ. And so now he's going to continue that message this morning. Look, if you would, in verse number 22, I want to read again, so we'll have this on the screen. We're only preaching 24 to 36 this morning, but I want to back up to 22 and 23 as we get our running start. Look at verse 22. Here's how he begins his real message to the people. Men of Israel, hear these words. Again, he's having to speak very loudly more than I am right now. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with, how did God attest him? With mighty works and wonders and signs. That God did through him, notice, in your midst. You know they're not fake. He did them right in your midst. As you yourselves know, in other words, hey, you all know that God had his hand on Jesus. You know he did miracles. You know it caused you to have wonder. You know they are signs that pointing to a spiritual truth. The truth is his identity. You knew he was a man sent from God. And yet, verse 23, this Jesus... Skip the next phrase. Look at verse 23 with your eyes. Skip the next phrase. Jump to the middle of the verse. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You, the nation of Israel, crucified the one that you know that God had attested to you by miracle signs and wonders. How has that happened? We spent some time on this last week. How do they go from verse 22, in essence, shouting Hosanna on Sunday of the triumphal entry before Christ, laying down their clothes and palm branches, just sure that he's the Messiah, but by Friday, they're crying out, crucify. Some in this audience. How does this happen? The answer is in the, in the first part of verse 23. Peter says, this Jesus that's been attested to you by miracle signs and wonders, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, it's not just the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God allowed for this to happen. It was in the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for this to happen, right down to the detail. All the wicked people who did all the wicked things to Christ was foreordained to have happened because there's this, this definite plan which we Learned last week means this predetermined, predetermined plan of God. So here's where we left last week. There, these things happen because the death of Christ in every detail was predetermined. In all of it, it was predetermined to happen. And even though all these wicked people had a part in it, though it was predetermined, that does not excuse them. But we didn't stop there. We learn that there is also a predetermined plan of God, not just for his death, but for all things. All things, including your life. Your life has been predetermined in every part. Nothing is left to chance in the foreknowledge of God before he ever made you. Everything you have or will do has already been predetermined. But that does not let you off the hook to sit there and think, well, I'm just a mind-numb robot then going through life. No, you are a real person with a will who is making real choices, real choices that matter and that you're going to give an account for. You're going to give an account, not for God's predetermined plan. You're going to give an account for your decisions, your actions, because they all matter. And I know we have a hard time correlating those two things. How can there be a predetermined plan and we're still responsible I can't explain it all. I just know it to be the case. And I better act upon what God's revealed plan and calling and offer is. That's what I better respond to and you as well. 
And so with that, verse 22 and 23, let's pick up with today's reading in verses number uh, 24. So we saw it already. Miracles, wonders, and signs. He's delivered up according to the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. So here, here's, here's our last phrase, verse 23. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Here's today's text. Could almost add the word but in front of him. You killed him. Verse 24. God, picture him again. Peter's in the back parking lot. Large audience. Top of his lungs. God raised him up. You killed him. You knew that he was attested by God. You knew about the miracles. Many of you experienced them or a loved one experienced them. Most all of you have seen them. Yet you still crucified him. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Quickly. What's that little pronoun it stand for? Give me the word. It could not hold him. It was what? In the sentence, it means death. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter makes this broad statement, and he doesn't even say why it was impossible for Jesus to be. He just says it. And then he starts to give an idea now why he would say that. For David, now really, this is a tricky text today. It's not going to take us to the, to the places last week's did. But to understand this text, it's kind of real tricky. So I'm going to try to help us in the first reading to at least start getting a feel for it. Watch what Peter says. For David says concerning him. David, who wrote back here, Peter's here, saying David says concerning him. What did David write? Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. We don't need to turn there because we have it almost word for word. This is the Greek written version of what Peter would have spoken in Aramaic, referring to what was written in the Old Testament in Hebrew. So it almost lines up word for word even in the English. Boy, I really messed that up, didn't I? David writes it in Hebrew. Peter's preaching it in Aramaic. Later on, Luke writes it in Greek, and so it's like, go back in your own time and compare this with that, and here's what Peter's saying. He's telling his audience, hey, you Jews, David was talking about him when he said this. He wrote concerning him. What did he write? Psalm 16. Here we go. I put that mindset. Yes, David was true of these things about in David's life, but it's mainly about Christ's life. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Psalm 16 says, my whole being rejoiced. My heart was glad. My tongue, my whole being rejoiced. My flesh also, who's he talking about? My flesh also will dwell in hope. My flesh will dwell in hope. What's that mean? Verse 27. For you, David wrote about Jesus. This is what's going on in Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One. Jesus knows he is the Holy One. Or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You just sense this whole upswell, this hope, this anticipation. Now, Peter, leaving Psalm 16, comes back to his audience where he's preaching on the day of Pentecost in verse 29. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Hey, hey, let's just get real. Let's call it like it is. David wrote that in Psalm 16. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, two things happen about David in verse 30. Then why did David write that? Being, therefore, a prophet. He wrote it because he's a prophet. David received special revelation from God. Being, therefore, a prophet and knowing David knew something. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw. What did he foresee? He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Pause. Peter's talking to an audience that does not allow in their theology a resurrected Savior because that means a dying Savior. Peter's saying, David saw it. David saw the resurrection of the Christ. Why don't you see it? Why do you not allow for it? Why do you think this man, Jesus, dying on a cross has disqualified him? Oh, no, it actually identifies him. David saw it. Again, verse 30. No, verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Watch the inflection. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, Peter's talking to his audience, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. God raised him up. We're witnesses of this. All right, then we've got some questions. I've got answers. Verse 33. Being, therefore, exalted. Pay attention. I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment. See if you're thinking. Peter's preaching. Being, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God. He's saying Jesus is that. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That means Jesus is sitting there. Jesus has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out this, this that you're seeing and hearing. What does this refer to? Could be more specific. The noise? All right, the coming spirit? What is it? The speaking in tongues. Verse 33 again, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit, this specific manifestation of the Spirit that was the speaking tongue. He's the one who's done this. Now down the home stretch, verse 34. Psalm 16? Oh yeah, Psalm 110 too. For David did not ascend into the heavens. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord. Here's Peter preaching to these people around 30 A.D. Talking about something that was written in 1000 B.C. And here's what he's saying. Back when he wrote that in Psalm 110 verse 1. 
Here's why that was happening. David did not ascend, but he wrote this. He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, you come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I'm going to crush them down. And then Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. God has made the Jesus you crucified Lord and Christ. Just notice, how many have I got this morning? Let's say three because that's how many I usually have. I think it is three. Here we go. Number one. So last week we saw Jesus was validated by his miracles. And Jesus was validated by his death, the way it happened. Today, obviously, we're jumping in verse 24. Jesus was validated by his resurrection. He's confirmed. He's attested. He's proven that he is this person that Peter is going to make him out to be. How, how do we know this? Because of his resurrection. Write that quickly because I want to jump right on into this, guys. Here's what we're going to find. We're only in chapter 2. This is the first Christian sermon, the first one, and it sets a pattern. Here's what we learn, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to be a dominant feature in the book of Acts. It is going to be central to the sermons in Acts. The resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is going to be central to the sermons in the book of Acts. I'm going to tell you, like, I don't know that there's a sermon in the book of Acts that doesn't have the resurrection. We will find some that may not mention his death, but the death is implied when we're talking about his resurrection. They always mention the resurrection. It's like the ongoing theme of the book. of This thing is really important. Now, what is it? About 10 weeks, Lord willing, uh, we'll have a, a, a cantata, and some of you will participate in that, and that'll be great. And I'm going to give a message, and it's going to be Easter. And guess what I'm going to include in that? So never get tired of hearing this. The resurrection of Christ is key for many things, but one of the reasons is it tells us Jesus not only died on a cross, and he not only died on a cross for our sins, but it tells us that God, we know God, accepted. God accepted Jesus' death on the cross as a sufficient payment for our sins. That's why God raised him up. If Jesus' death was not sufficient, God would have held him down, and, and that would have been the sign, nope, didn't work, it's not enough. Those animals, although killing all those animals didn't work, killing that man that we thought was the Christ, that didn't work. God's not satisfied. But when he raised him up, that lets us know God is now satisfied with the death of Christ as the payment for sin. But it's more than that. I'm not doing a full message on the resurrection today because we're going to be hitting it all through the book of Acts. It's going to, it's going to keep coming up. But for this message, MacArthur makes a great point. I want you to write it down. He says that the greatest proof that Jesus is the Messiah then, he's putting the thoughts together from the last three verses, the greatest proof that Jesus is the Messiah then is not his teaching, his miracles, or even his death. Think about that. Why would he say that? The greatest proof, all those are proofs. It's not his teaching, that's not the greatest. It's not, his, it's not his miracles, that's not the great. Not even his death. He writes, it is his resurrection. That's the greatest of the proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. Why would 
he writes such a statement. Why would I quote it to you this morning and have you write it down? I want to offer the following. Now work with me. I know some of you are writing, uh, but those, if, if, if some of you can, you women can do this and a few of you guys, some of you can do two things at once. Um, watch. Why would he say that the resurrection is the greatest? I'm going to hold out my hands. This represents Jesus Christ. This represents the apostles. Question. Which one of these two, Jesus or the apostles, taught, taught and preached truths that were from God that the world had never heard before? Jesus or the apostles? Which one taught truth that was from God the world had never heard? Both. Okay. Well, that's good. All right. Jesus or the apostles, which one performed miracles that are recorded in the word of God? Both. When did the apostles perform their miracles? During and after Jesus' death. He sent them out in groups of two and he gave them this power. We don't have a lot of details. All we know is that they did miracles. And then after he's resurrected and back to heaven, they continue to do more. We're going to have some massive statements here coming up in just a couple of chapters about the apostles are going to be doing all these wonderful things, and God is blessing, and it's just left generic and broad. Okay? Jesus and the apostles, which of the two person or groups was put to death by their enemies because of their preaching? Both. So they teach, they perform miracles, and they're put to death. Yeah, but Jesus was crucified. Were any of them crucified? Peter, they tell us, was crucified. So maybe Peter is the Messiah. Oh, no. The difference being, why MacArthur would say this, what sets Jesus apart is he's the only one that was resurrected. None of the apostles were resurrected. Somebody may answer, Jeff, time out, time out. Hang on, that's great. You know, others were resurrected besides Jesus. True. But I want to propose to you that most of them in the Bible who were resurrected were resurrected by Jesus. And... Those people who were resurrected by Christ, none of their lives, their miracles, and their death in particular fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. And none of the people in the Bible or in the history of the world who've been resurrected, like confirmed resurrected, like dead, cold, buried, funerals getting ready to happen or has already happened, those people, none of them predicted their resurrection well in advance like Jesus did precisely saying, here's your sign, it'll be the third day. The resurrection confirms who Jesus is. It attests it. It validates. Now we're about four weeks removed. Look at verse, verse 24, the second part. God raised him up, Peter's preaching, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. About four weeks ago, it was Christmas. And you'll figure this out. When we preach Christmas messages about why this happened, why Christmas it's always going to come back to ultimately three things. He relays specific things to us from God as God. He relays the message of God. He relates. Why did he become human? To relate with us. So to relate to us from God as God. Never had that before. And to relate with us. That was half of this past uh, uh, Christmas uh, it was actually New Year's, we had to do it, but it was half of that message was on how he became human in every way, made like us in every respect, so he could relate with us. But y'all help me out. 
Neither one of those are the main reason Christmas happened. Jesus happened, Christmas happened, because the eternal Son of God needed to become a man so that he could die. We're always going to go there at Christmas. So we want to start writing that down. God's Son became a man primarily so that he could die. But here's the thing. He didn't stop being God. So as God, being God, in fact, in chapter 3, Peter's going to preach again, and he's going to call Jesus the author of life. So, yes, he's human, and he died, but being God, the author of life, it was impossible. It was not possible for death to hold him down. Death could not hold him down. Death could not keep him in prison. It was impossible. In fact, we have this unusual word that we probably don't use a lot, except in scenarios like I alluded to a few moments ago. Loosing the pangs of death. God loosed the pangs of death. We usually associate the word pangs with what? Birth. There's a lot of direction. I'm not digging deep into that. Let's just throw this at you. Imagine a woman just coming to a conclusion saying, you know what, I just don't feel like doing it. I'm not up to it. I don't know they're really, no, I'm just, just not going to do it. I'm not going to do what? I'm not going to have the baby. And it's, I'm not talking about abortion, just like, I'm just not going to let it out. I'm just going to hold it in. And like, how old is that kid? Oh, it's a year old now. How old is it? Two. We don't really say birthday because there's, no, there's not going to be a birth. I'm not doing it. I don't feel like it. How old are they now? Well, about seven years. Like seven-year-old kid. You're like, that is ridiculous. Nobody could do that. Sooner would a woman just decide, I'm going to hold the baby inside unendingly than the tomb of Jesus trying to hold him back past the appointed time. Can't do it. It's going to give forth Christ's birth. Do you see, right before we go to our second point this morning, do you see what Peter's doing? He's laying down a challenge. You know the official word in the streets what happened. Yes, everybody knows his tomb is empty. But the official word was that his body had been Stolen. You see what Peter's doing right in broad daylight, top of his lungs. God raised him up from that. You killed him. God raised him up. He's laying down a challenge to the leaders in Israel, some of whom, no doubt, they're close to the temple. Some of them are actually in. I'm wondering, was there some eye contact? You know what he's doing? You know. Hey, they know. You know you're telling... Yeah, you back there. Yeah, you. You know you're lying. You know. Your word is it was stolen by who? His followers? Well, here we are. Step up and say it now. Oh, you're not going to say it now because you don't want to get in a little. How did, tell us, how did we do it with the Roman soldiers standing there? How did we do that? Nobody confronts. Nobody shouts him down. What Peter is doing, he's laying a challenge. You know you're lying. And you got to live with that. You know, we know you're lying. You know that we know that you're lying. You got to live with that. You know that we know that you know that you're lying. How do you live with yourselves? I could really keep going with that and just keep adding that phrase again and again. It really gets ridiculous. But it is true. And all they can do is stand there and go, 
nobody shouts him down. Number two, before I hit the second point, I want to ask you, if you have your Bible open, and if you have font like I do, you're going to easily answer this question. It's important. As we're looking at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, here's my question. What do verses 17 to 21, 25 to 28, and 34 and 35 have in common? 17 to 21, 25 to 28, and 34 and 35. If you have a Bible that just has the words all in the same, there's never any break, you know, no changing of pattern, no setting off of paragraphs, you're not going to see it easily. Those of you that have your Bible open, what do? Tell me, what do verses 17 to 21, 25 to 28, and 34 and 35, they are all what? They're scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. And pay attention right here, please. They had the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. That was their Bible. Here's Peter, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, who's an apostle. No one's going to be more authoritative in, in the history of the world other than Jesus, than Peter and the apostles, Paul included with that. And yet here he is. He's going to write two books of the Bible himself, but even he, filled with the Spirit, uses the Bible in like 11 of the, eight, of the 28 verses he's preaching. Do you see that? His whole sermon is like dominated by the Bible, by scriptures. Well, Jeff, why are you pointing this out? Because I've got a couple pet peeves. I have issues, and by the way, this is a sad reality, not in all churches this morning, but in many, many, I'll bet you over half the churches this morning across our country, this is what's going to be happening. There's going to be a, a verse or two that's going to be used at the start of some sermons, and then it's going to kind of be left in the dust because that's just a little springboard to kind of make it official as they go off and start telling about their little life story, and they got some cute little analogies, and they got some cute little uh, uh, poems or, or downloaded stuff, illustrations off the Internet, and, and a hymn or two that they're going to read, and they're going to call that a sermon. And there's going to be no Bible, hardly any Bible in it. And there's others, Now I want to say this clearly, there's others, that this is just a fact, 95% of their message is going to be psychology. I'm not against psychology. What I'm not saying what they're saying is wrong. And I'm not saying what they're saying is useless because it is useful. If we, if we study people and we learn, here's the habits and here's what the stats say, and this is what is true over and over, I think we'd be foolish not to use those things. But what I really get suspicious when a guy gets up and preaches and just barely sprinkles in 5% of the Bible, but it's 95% psychology, don't call that a sermon. That's not the same thing. I have an issue with that. You make me real suspicious. You may be telling some nice, truthful, truthful things. Nice podcast, right? But that's not a sermon. Sermons are going to, even if you only use a couple of texts, we're going to roll around in the text. We're going to roll around it. We're going to wallow in it. We're going to get it all over us. That should be, this is the first Christian sermon. This sets the tone. This is what it should be like. Now that I got that little rant out of my system, write down point number two. This is where Larry says I get in trouble. I don't, I don't do true exposition. I, I do exposition with little, uh, little, quite a few little mini topical sermons within my exposition. And I'm guilty. That was one. Number two. Jesus was validated by David's prophecy. He's validated by his miracles. He's validated by his death, the way it fulfilled prophecy. He's validated by his resurrection. By the way, this, this point today is really nothing more than continuing the last point, but a little more specifically. 
David's now saying he's validated by David's prophecy. Let's read it again, but with this in mind. I want you to read it with this in mind. The note will come up again in a moment. Everybody with me? What David wrote in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, is true of David. It is true of David. All but one little part. So it was true in his life, but it was more true in his future descendant. It pointed in a far greater way. So it's true for him. It's true for him. So we could read that over and over, and I could read this, and, and we could go through mindset. Here's how David lived life. But as we do it, I want us to kind of think this is how Jesus lived his life because David was mainly writing about Jesus. We'll finish that note in a moment. Look at verse 25 again. Get your Bible open. For David says concerning him, Peter's preaching. This is what Jesus, this is what's going on in him. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let, my, let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. In fact, Psalm uh, 16, the next phrase goes on, talks about at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I'm not sure why Peter didn't include that. He includes it down in verse 33 in essence. So it's true of David. I write this down. But it was in a far greater way pointed to the Christ, the future descendant of David. How do we know this? Because verse 27 in Acts 2 could not possibly be talking about David. Couldn't be talking about David because David's body had died and was buried and had, had decomposed literally over a thousand years before this. Couldn't possibly. That's what, David, that's what uh, Peter's saying in verse 29. Hey guys, let's just get frank about David. He died. He's rotting. There's probably nothing left of him. What he wrote is true. It's just more true, especially verse 27. It's more true about the Christ. You didn't see the resurrection. He got a picture of it in advance. It's about the Christ. Do y'all understand David was a real man with a real body? I mean, a good one. He had a good one. I'll, I'll promise you this. <laughs> If David was here this morning, if he didn't live back then and he lived now, this guy had a brilliant mind and a, the best heart. He says he's the best. If David, if David was here this morning, here's all I know. Men in the Old Testament flocked to him and they would die for this guy. If he was here this morning, all the, all the guys in here, man, we'd like him. And all the women here would be like, and who is, who is that? Who is that guy? Whoa. Whoa. You would note, but that's in this life. His time had come and it had gone. And he was in his day as a teenager and as a young man and as a middle-aged man and as an older man. And then he died and his body was buried and it just shriveled. It, it's ugly. You would not want to see the body of David right now. But he was talking about Jesus. Keep your notes going. This is important. Verses 25 to 28. Why is Peter using this? This is giving us a snapshot into the mind of Jesus just before his crucifixion. And that's where I want you guys to go with me for the next few minutes. Let's go into what we are getting. This is such a unique passage that is giving us. I always get a little bit of heebie-jeebies in John 13. And I always get a little bit. That's at the foot washing that Mike referred to. Thankfully, Lowe's let us do that um, uh, promo this morning. 
saw that. <laughs> we're down there and like, hey, start shooting. That's great. So thank you, Lowe's, uh, for letting our men shoot a video. Mike referred to John chapter 13. I always read that, and it's all it's kind of like just mysterious to me. And then when I read the Garden of Gethsemane, that's mysterious to me. I want to propose this morning, we are getting a glimpse into the mind of Jesus as he's approaching death. Now go with me quickly in your mind into the Garden of Gethsemane. What is Jesus thinking? Say, Jeff, he's sorrowful to the point of death. He thinks he's about to die. Jeff, he's agonizing. Jeff, he's shuddering. Why is he shuddering? Be specific. In your mind. He's shuddering and agonizing. He's at the point of death at the thought of what? Do you think it's at the thought of dying physically? No. It's at the thought of becoming sin. He hates sin, but he knows he's going to become sin. It's the thought of him on a cross receiving the outpouring of the wrath of God for all the sins of every person who ever lived. Yes, that's causing him shudder. shudder. That's causing him anguish. But not physical death. Write this thought. He shuddered in the garden, yes, but he faced the actual moment of death, according to our text, with absolute full assurance that God would not let his body decompose. He knows my body will die, but I will not decompose. I will not be left in the grave. This is his mindset. In fact, I'm thinking... When I read it, and I'm not going to go there fully, but let me refer to this. You know what this text reminds me of? You see verse 28? Now, the end of verse 26. Look at the end of verse 26. Here's what's going on. David was writing about the Christ. My flesh also will dwell in hope. It's not, boy, I hope so. There's a confident expectation. I know this will happen. I know this will happen. That's what's going on in the mind of Christ. It reminded me of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. What was in Christ's mind? Let's go back to eternity past. Jesus is in the form of God. We studied that out a few years ago at Christmas. That means he is God. So here he is as God. He knows that equality with God is not something to be grasped. Watch, it's important. So here's Jesus. I'm sorry, not Jesus. Here's the Son of God who knows He's equal with God. He doesn't think that being equal with God is something to grasp for, like one day I'm going to get there. He has it. But he also knows that I don't have to grasp this and clutch it and squeeze it as if I know I'm not going to become a human being. I know your little plan. I'm going to become a man. You're going to let me die and you're going to let me rot so you can have it all to yourself. No. He doesn't have that at all. He doesn't have to squeeze his divinity. Yes, I can maintain that and become a human being because I can trust my Father. He goes into this with full hope and assurance and rest that God's promises are true. I got a lot out of verse 25. I'll not be able to give it all to you this morning. You ought to go swim in it. What was Jesus' mind like? For David... Peter says, David says concerning him, here's what Jesus thought. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Y'all got to get this. As Jesus is going through life, he always saw the Lord before him, always at his right hand. 
so he will not be shaken. MacArthur helped me here. He writes, I get it, the right hand symbolizes protection. He says, in a wedding ceremony, the bridegroom stands to the right of the bride. I did my daughter and, and Matt's wedding just back in September, and sure enough, as I'm speaking, facing the audience, and they're facing me, Matt is here, Erica's here, he's on her right. You know what that symbolizes? I'm the protector. Bride's here, husband's here, I'm the protector. Again, MacArthur writes, the right hand symbolizes protection. In a wedding ceremony, the bridegroom stands to the right of the bride. In the ancient world, a bodyguard stood on the right side of the one he was protecting. Why? Because in that position, he could cover him with his shield and still have his right arm free to fight. If I'm the bodyguard, I'm protecting this person, I'm standing to his right. Oh, an incident comes up, I'm able to shield and I can fight here. I'm standing to the right. This is a position of protection. What's going on? Verse 25 shows us how Jesus went through life. Jesus went through life knowing I've got a bodyguard here all the time and it's my father. I don't need to go through, oh, you're going to... He don't have to do that. God is his constant bodyguard. Like this thought, Jesus didn't live feeling scared and afraid. Why? He lived feeling completely secure. Why? Because Jesus lived with a constant awareness of the presence of God. As he went through life, he just knows God is constantly at his right hand. He's always there, always there. You ought to go home and just swim in that. Jesus lived with a constant awareness. Oh, by the way, there is one exception. There's only one time where he did not have the constant awareness of the Father's presence. Where was that? Say it. Yes. Watch. 9 a.m. he's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He prays it over and over. That's what the wording. From 9 a.m. to noon, he's aware of the Father's presence. But from noon to somewhere around 3, it got dark. And in that, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you... Every other time he addresses God, it's always Father, Father, Father. But for that little three hours, he is not aware. Why? Because he is being forsaken, because he has become sin, and the Father is pouring out his wrath on him. But other than that, he always... And oh, by the way, by the end of the cross, that awareness is back. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And oh, by the way, I'm trusting you with my body. That's the way to live. Could I borrow you, Brother Victor? Could you stand for a moment? Yes, sir. I just want you to make a little loop. We're going to right down there, and you're going to come up those steps and come right back here and back. Would you just do that? Yes. Well, you just do it. Y'all just have to forgive us. Is there any chance that Brother Victor can, like, forget I'm right here? Like, not be aware? Are you aware that I'm right here? Quite aware, it seems like. For sure, he says. Is this how you go through life? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You say, that's ridiculous. That's how David lived. That right there. This big nine foot nine inch, inch, inch dude kept making fun of the Israelites, defying God. David shows up and like, who's that jerk? And they're like, oh, that's Goliath. Nobody wants to go out and fight him. Well, I'll go fight. No, you won't. Yes, I will. He's not getting by with that. And finally, he convinces them. Well, here, you, you, you need some armor, don't you? No, I don't need all that. You need a sword. No, I don't need that. He's got one. I'll just use his. <laughs> I don't need that. 
I'm going to pick up some rocks over here. I really only need one. And there stands Goliath, looks down at little bitty David, a young man, and his attitude is, is this what you come up with? A little boy, a little stick? Ha, 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 I'm going to, you know what David's attitude? I'm reading between the lines. When I get my hands on you, I'm going to literally cut your head off your shoulders. You don't stand a chance. I'm going to kill you. You don't even have a sore get over here, little boy. I'm going to cut your head off your shoulders. Y'all do know what happened there, right? Oh, I know he killed him with the stone. Took his own sword and cut his head off. David's attitude, do you not see this? Do you not see this? You don't have a chance. Do you go through life like that? That's how David went through life. I just happened to be reading Psalm 23 this week. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's, I'm, I'm in a valley. You ever been there? I'm in a valley and it's dark. Death seems close. My mind's where death really is. People are. David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you see what he's doing? David sees himself as a little sheep. And God is his shepherd. This is David in the flock. He's not the only sheep, but David is just, you know, he's just enjoying life. There's the shepherd. Life's good. And he's eating his grass, and all of a sudden, some wild cat or some wild dog, a wolf, coyote, or whatever, all of a sudden, they show up. And the little heart and the sheep, and they start getting scared, and they're looking. Then look over at the shepherd. Does the shepherd even see? Oh, the shepherd does see. And it's, and then, and finally it's, oh, shepherd's getting up. Shepherd's got his rod and his staff. Shepherd's stepping toward him. And finally, I'm good. That's how David lived. Not all the time. He forgot about it when he was on a balcony and looked down. There was a woman bathing. And instead of going, oh, whoa, go tell that woman she's got to get some curtains. My goodness, I can't walk on my balcony. Tell her to do better than that. Wow. Sorry, Lord. That's all right. You did the right thing. He forgot about it. Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. I'll not be shaken. I find that we live secure when we go through life with an awareness of God's presence. And we get shaken when we forget that. The result is verse 26. Jesus says, he dwells in hope. What does that mean? His flesh will dwell in hope. Why? Verse 27. For you will not abandon. He knows you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Write this down. What is Hades? Hades is the Greek New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word what? Sheol. Sheol. So Hades is the equivalent of that. Hades, you say, what does this mean? It represents the grave. And I don't mean like where the backhoe digs out a grave that's six feet deep and by those dimensions. It's, it's what's going, what the grave represents. So hang with me. Hades represents the grave. 
It represents the place. There's a real place where souls that have departed from their body, they all went there. So they go there to the place of departed souls. Back in the Old Testament time, when Christians and believers died, they just didn't go to heaven. They went to Hades. But Hades, by all putting it all together, seems to me that Hades had two compartments with a great gulf between, according to, to G, what Jesus says in, Luke, in, in the book of Luke, the gospel. So there's this paradise side of Hades, and then there's torment side of Hades that we associate with Gehenna, hell. And so... You say, Jesus had to go to hell, to the torments? No. He went to paradise, Abraham's bosom. But there was, they were able to see and have some communication with those that were over in hell. This is the place of departed souls of the unsaved damned people that never believed in the promises of God. So what verse 27, write this down, means Jesus, as he's approaching this, knows he will die, his body will die, his body will be buried, but, and his soul is going to Hades. But he's not going to stay there very long. Not going to be there long at all. Because corruption starts setting in typically after the third day. Like with Lazarus. Jesus knows I'm not going to be there that long. Verse number 28. You have. Here's, here's what the mind of Christ is. Here's why he's able to rest in hope. Because you've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Let's get tricky just for a second. Jesus knows his body's going in a tomb, a real tomb. It really will die. He'll go there. His soul is going to Hades, but he's not going to be there that long. And he knows that when he comes out, he ultimately and very soon is going to the Father. In part, I could say he's going to return to the Father. Now, here's the tricky part. In my mind, I, I wouldn't die for what I'm about to say, but I think it's accurate. As the eternal Son of God, who is spirit... The Son of God is going to return to the Father, but He knows as He goes, He's not just having the spiritual ascension to the right hand of God. He's taking His human soul and His human body with Him, and when He does, His human soul was the first human soul to go into heaven, and His body to this day is the only physical body in heaven. Wherever heaven is, whatever it's like, there is one physical body there, and it's this body of Jesus. And he's the first. You say, is he the only human soul? Oh, no. We have loved ones. There's many other human souls, but their bodies are still here. His, he took with him. He's the only one. He's in his own category. He's holy. He's unique. This is Jesus. So verse 28, what does this imply? Jesus has this anticipation, this longing. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We're to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So he endures the cross, he despises the shame, hates the sin and the shame, hates it, but he's anxious, he's ready. Think about it this way. He and the Father have had face-to-face communion for all of eternity. All of eternity. We can't even understand that. But for the last 33 years, that's been laid aside as he's been on earth, and he's ready to have it back. The only thing that stands between him and that, as he's coming down, he's getting ready to pray in the garden. We're looking at about 16 hours. He's going to agonize in the garden. He's going to have six phases of a corrupt trial. There's going to be some beatings. He's going to be crucified. That's horrible. The worst, though, he's going to become sin, and the Father's going to pour out the wrath of eternity on all of our sin, on Christ. But then... He's going to physically die, and his body will be buried, and his soul will go to Hades. We don't know what he did there for those parts of three days other than he preached 
to the captive spirits, the evil spirits that since, not all of them, but some evil spirits were so bad, they did something that made God so angry that they were put in a captivity. And Jesus went to Hades, and part of what he did was he preached to them the victory. I don't know. Did he go Ric Flair on them? I don't know. You lose. Woo! I don't know what he did. But, man, he let them have it. Man, he preached. You lose. We win. And then he resurrected. That's what Christ did. Now, verse 28. This is maybe, if you're a Christian, this may be like the, the main thing. My last point is all setting up toward next week. So I want you to get this last little nugget. This is key. And I've talked to a few people. Even this morning, I've talked to people. You better zero in right here. Right here is where it's at. What is Jesus doing in verses 25 to 28? He gave us, write it down, a perfect pattern of how to face suffering. And even eventual death. Suffering's coming. There's people in the room right now. They're suffering. They're in pain. Maybe physically. But emotionally. Mentally, they'd rather that some some in the room would trade off some trade off some emotional mental pain for some physical pain. Oh yeah, I'll take that. Give me that. This is worse. I'm talking about real. By the way, you say, well, that's not me. It's coming. Suffering's coming, and our death is coming. How do we face that? How do you face that the way Jesus did? You say, Jeff, when, su- when death comes and suffering comes, is it possible to have victory and peace? Write it down. Peace is found in undaunting faith in God's promises. This week, I've been swimming around. I got a glimpse into the mind of Jesus, what he was thinking. And it, it was written down a thousand years before it happened in Psalm 16. He had great confidence. He had full trust in God. He had promises that his soul would not be left in hell and his body would not be allowed to decompose past the third day like David, David's body was. He had full confidence. Now, this is why I'm gonna, I want to ask you to help me for a moment. Jesus had undaunting, unrelenting faith in the promises of God. He has Psalm 16 and other places he can anchor his faith in and he had it. And that's why he had peace. I'm looking at these words, glad, rejoiced, hope, gladness, all these things just keep coming up over this day. How does that happen? Because he had real promises and he anchored his faith unrelentingly in the promises of God. And if you hear that and say, well, Jeff, he had specific promises. All right, I'm going to offer it to you. Help me. Where's your mind go? Our death is coming. You're going to die one day. Suffering is coming. Do you have any promises? You have a reference for me this morning? Speak it out. Death's coming. Where do you want somebody to remind your mind to go? Is where? John 14. There's a good one. Psalm 23. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians chapter 1. Spilling over to 2. Any others? 
What is it? I will never leave you or forsake you. That's in Hebrews. There you go. That's in the Psalms, ain't it? Is that right? Forgive me if that's wrong. We'll edit that. <laughs> it's what? Okay, yes. Book of Revelation. That, that law, we know that it ends that way. Can I tell you where my mind would go? I'll just give you a big one. If you're ever in doubt, remember that Romans 8. You can't go wrong. Just go swim in Romans 8. You say, what about suffering? Romans 8. Just go swim in Romans 8. You know where my mind goes? I hope somebody reminds me. I hope I remember it myself. I'm getting ready to come. I see death's coming. If I have a chance, it may, it may happen like that. If I see death coming, I hope my mind remembers this. Philippians 1.23. I'm about to go somewhere that is far better than this. Not better than this. I'm about to go somewhere that's far better. I'm getting closer. Oh, you're upset? Don't be upset. Y'all do understand. I'm about to go somewhere far better than this. Suffering. How about Philippians chapter 4? Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious, but in everything, let your prayer requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. And then think on certain things. Don't believe the lies. Think on that which is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. Just like anchor on those things. You say, what good is that? Then the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How about, Philippians, how about Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16? When suffering comes, I have an advocate with the Father that can relate with me in every single way because he was made like me in every respect. Yet he did not sin, but he's there at the right hand of the Father. He's ready to help me. I'm going to call out. I'm going to receive grace and mercy in time of need. It's just full of them. I could go on and on and on. Romans 8 is always a good one. Romans 8. Don't forget it. Romans 8. Just swim there for either one of these. It's coming. Verse 32. Finish out this, third, this second point. Quickly come down the end. This, Peter says, this Jesus, David was talking about him, this Jesus God has raised up, and of that, we, do you see Peter's arms moving? We're witnesses. We've seen it. Jesus' resurrection was validated by eyewitnesses. When the apostles stood and preached about the resurrection, this was not theory to them. This was not a report they heard. This was their reality. Peter's, again, I, no doubt, of that, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. He's pointing to the other. In essence, what Peter's saying is, hey, Israel, seven weeks ago to the day, this is a Sunday, that was a Sunday. We were hiding. We had the doors locked. We were afraid. You had just killed our master. We were afraid you were going to get us. But on that day, something changed. We saw him alive, and we saw it over and over and over for 40 days. And about eight or nine days ago, he left. And ascended. And he left us a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. And it happened today. We've seen him. And we can't unsee it. We know he's alive. We've been waiting on his spirit to fill us. And now the spirit has come. And we will be preaching this. Just get ready. We will be telling you what we've seen and heard. Number three. Jesus was validated by his exaltation. So you're in the audience that day. What's your question? Here we go. Hey, you killed him, but God raised him up. Okay, then, if he really is alive, as you say, then what's your question? Where is he? Where is he? Peter's answer, he's at the right hand of God. Look at verse 33. 
Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. F.F. Bruce helps me here. Bruce writes about Jesus. He who had earlier received the Spirit for the public discharge of his own earthly ministry. When did that happen? When did Jesus receive the Holy Spirit for his own earthly ministry at his baptism? So he who had earlier received the Spirit for the public discharge of his own earthly ministry had now, at the right hand of the Father, received that same Spirit to impart to his representatives in order that they might continue and indeed share in the ministry which he had begun, unquote. So if Peter's audience is there, okay, you say he's alive, how do we know? We need some proof. You need proof? The proof is he's poured out the Holy Spirit. Did you hear the sound up in the upper room? I know somebody that got here later didn't hear that. Those other, yeah, something we've never heard before sound like a, what they're going to call a train was in that upper room. We don't know how to explain it. But what he's saying is, this what you've seen and heard. Okay, you, you need to know that Jesus really is alive and, and, and come back to life and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who's poured out his Spirit. How do we know he poured out his Spirit? Because we have the ability to speak in languages we've never learned. How do you all explain this? I thought about it. Watch. There's only three possible explanations for the gift of tongues in Acts 2. Either, number one, Jesus, through his spirit, gave them the ability to speak in languages they had never learned. And they're telling the truth. Or two, another power source gave them the ability to speak in languages they had never learned. So either Jesus did it or another power source did it. If the other power source did it, then no, they're making it really mad because they're giving Jesus the credit. You say, well, Jeff, there is a third option, right? The other option is they're just really smart and gifted themselves. And all at once, they suddenly have the ability to speak in known human languages they've never learned. We know it can't be the last one because our human nature is so prideful. Do you know today... You can't intercept a football or sack a quarterback or make a three-point play or make a dunk without expecting the whole arena to acknowledge your greatness. And none of those things are anywhere near in the category of being able to speak in a language. How do you speak in a language you've never learned? Oh, if it was them, they would take full credit. Write it down. Neither Peter nor the 120 want personal credit for being able to speak in tongues. They don't want it. They're deflecting it all toward Christ. So if he didn't do it, then how do you explain our sudden ability? It is inexplainable. We are telling you the truth. Then verse 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, here goes Peter again quoting scripture. He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is now quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. And this is real simple. David's, or, or Peter's thinking is real simple here. Hey, just like Psalm 16 could not be talking about David because his body's in the grave, we know that David's body is in the grave. By the way, just 150 years or so before this, maybe almost 200 years before this, David's tomb was raided by an enemy. Outside enemy came in and tried to steal things out of it. Later on, they tried to re-embellish re it and set it back up. The body was not stolen. It's in there. Obviously, David did not ascend to heaven. So who's David talking about? Let's go quickly. 
David, what Psalm 110 verse 1, that's verse 34 and 35 in your Bible, what that means is that David knew way back here, he knows that that special position at the right hand of God is not reserved for him. No, that's not my position. That's the position of my future special descendant, the Christ. He will sit at the right hand. The right hand of God is not reserved for me, David. I'm writing about my Lord. Yes, it's going to be one of my descendants. It's going to be called my son. My son is going to be my Lord. So he's much more than a son. Much more than a son. I wish we had time. Remember how I said, spoken in Aramaic, written in Greek. What was, and we're reading it in English, what was previously written in Hebrew. Go home when you get a chance. Just, just, just in, a, in a moment, you might, some of you might flip over there right quick. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord. You don't see it in English here, but in Psalm 110, verse 1, you do see it. The spelling, not the spelling, L-O-R-D is not different, but the font and the capitalization is different. Anybody want to take a guess how the first Lord is spelled? All caps. What is it, Miss Sonia? Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, you don't see it in the New Testament, we see Lord. In the Old Testament, you got to pay attention. Is it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's Yahweh, the I am self-existent, eternal, self-sufficient God who makes covenants with Israel. The, the Yahweh, the I am God, is talking to capital L, lowercase o-r-d, back in Psalm 110. Who is that Lord? That is none other than Adonai. Adonai is the sovereign one. So here's David writing and saying, Yahweh, the I am God, says to my Adonai, the sovereign one, you. So what we have here is God calling God to sit at his right hand. What we have ultimately, let's just cut to the chase, God the Father calling God the Son to sit at his right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we finish with verse 36, and I'm going to stop abruptly. You'll be surprised. No big, long, drawn out, because we're setting up for next week. A lot of teaching today. Next week, there's going to be some preaching. Verse 36, Peter concludes. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And they're thinking, who? This Jesus whom you crucified. Uh-oh. So we have these three names or titles. Y'all help me out. Look at verse 36 with your eyes. Which one of those is his earthly human name? Jesus. So now we have this term Christ. Write it down. Christ means the anointed Messiah. The anointed Messiah of the, Holy, of, of, of the Old Testament prophecies. So this one that's coming, his name is Jesus. He's the anointed Messiah, the Christ, that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. So then who is this Lord? Lord means the absolute ruler over all things. Y'all help me out. If this person's the absolute ruler over all things, then they have to be who? Three letters. God. Got to be God. Jesus is his human name. Christ means he's the Messiah, the anointed Messiah of the Old Testament prophecies. Lord means he's at the top. He's the absolute ruler, absolute master, absolute ruler over all things. Nothing is by him. He has complete control. 
He's God. And if you say, I don't really believe that aspect of it, write this down. The word Lord in verse 36 is the same word as the word Lord in verse 39, which proves Jesus is God. Because verse 39 says, and this is next week's message, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God, the Lord our God shall call, calls to himself. I don't know if you got all of that. Here's where I'm leaving you. What's Peter's point? Israel. Hey, men of Israel, listen. About AD 30. You are the generation. You're it. Our forefathers have waited for 1,500 years since Moses, 2,000 years since Abraham for the Messiah to come. You're the generation where he actually came. And when he came, he's, his name was Jesus. He is the Messiah, but he's more than you thought. He's actually the Lord, sovereign, ruler of all the universe, who is God himself, the Adonai, who's sitting at the right hand of God. So here's Peter's thought as he leads into verse 36. Here it is. God has honored the Joel prophecy. God has honored the Psalm 16 prophecy. God has honored the prophecy of Psalm 110, verse 1a, that he is seated at his, seated at his right hand. And oh, by the way, he will honor Psalm 110, verse 1b. How did they hear this? If you're there that morning, how did they hear it? He came. You're the ones. You got to see it. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. But you killed him. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. How do you hear that? There's two ways. The Lord, the Christ, came, but you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. We blew it. But God raised him from the dead. Okay. That's one way. What's the other? The Lord Messiah Christ came. You're the generation. Seven weeks ago, he came, but you killed him. You killed him. But he's alive. And God will be honoring Psalm 110, 1b. God, you sit here. I'm going to crush your enemies. Hey, Israel, right now. You are his enemies. You're in big trouble. Judgment's coming. If you need me, me and them will be in an upper room over here. You might see us sometime down at the temple. <laughs> That's not what Peter did. You know how they heard it? They didn't hear. Thankfully, God cleaned up our mess. What they heard was, oh, no. Oh, no, we're, we're, we're in a mess. They're cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Is there any hope? Yeah, you ought to come next week. Let's stand. As you're standing, heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before you leave, Christians, can I encourage you this? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Can I, just before we pray, can I encourage you with these two things? Do whatever it takes to help you get better at living with an awareness of the presence of God. I want to live like David lived. That guy didn't even have the Holy Spirit in him permanently. He had the whole Holy Spirit come on him. 
But he lived with like this, again, not always, but he just lived with an awareness of God's presence. That is shameful to me because I have the Holy Spirit. Do what it takes. Beg God, Lord, help me this week to live more aware of your presence. And then secondly, suffering's coming. Peace is available. Peace is found. Victory is found in unrelenting, undaunting faith in very specific promises that you're not twisting. Do you have them? If you're in suffering and anguish, if death is coming your way, do you have specific verses? Go ahead and start now. Like, Lord, I'm going to anchor in that when this issue comes up. I want to have peace and hope and gladness and rejoicing like Jesus lived with, anchored in the promises of God. Father, I pray that you'll go with us now. Thank you for Peter's sermon. We've looked at three parts. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to come next week and even bring maybe an unsaved friend to be able to hear what is the solution to the trouble that we're all in as we are born, your enemies. Lord, help us to rightly relay that and to rightly respond to the offer that you make in verses 37 to 41. I pray those of us that have already responded by calling on you as our Lord and Savior that this week we'll live like it. Lord, I pray that our whole awareness will be dominated uh, by just knowing that you're present with us, never forgetting, and it affects how we live. May we live more victorious, less defeated, less beat down, less afraid. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.